0: We go. All right. I want to give a special thank you to Ron Boone. He uh, created these little communion element holders for our uh, for our music team, because he noticed that when we bring up the elements to them, it's always like, where do we put these things? And so he just created this at the perfect angle. It sits right in the music stand, and uh, yeah, just saw saw a need, took it upon himself to make these. So uh, Ron's not here this morning, but special thank you to him. And as a woodworker, I like anything that's you know made out of wood. So. All right, church, we have been in the book of Esther, and we are coming near to the end. We're not going to quite reach the finish line today, but we are going to reach some resolution. And in case you're you're dropping in with us for the first time, we've been in the book of Esther, and in the book of Esther we saw that there was this irrevocable decree made that declared that the Jews were going to be annihilated. So God's people are facing imminent destruction. It was all masterminded by this villain Haman. We got to see Haman's downfall last week. He kind of gets his just desserts. Yet there was no real resolution to the problem that they were facing, this problem of annihilation. Now Esther is queen. She took a step of faith to expose the plot, and Haman gets executed for it. But... Esther still hasn't totally solved the problem yet. God's deliverance still is not actually there yet for his people. So we're going to dive in today and see finally this resolution come. This deliverance, this unexpected, expected deliverance that we've been talking about this whole time, we finally get to see it today. Now, today, In our passage, we're going to see that the the author of Esther really highlights the idea of reversal. We got to see a bit of this last week where Haman goes from on high to down low, and Mordecai goes from down low to on high. But it's going to continue and even ramp up with this idea of reversal today. So today is the great reverse. And we're going to see that God reverses for His people even the most terrible of expected outcomes. Even the most terrible of expected outcomes, God reverses it. Whether it's threats, trials, sufferings, He reverses it all. It's not meaningless that we walk through these things because God is active. Those things aren't insurmountable. God is bringing about a great reverse. Now, as we walk through today our passage, we're going to first see the nature of the reverse, And then we're going to see how this reverse actually happens. So you can follow along uh, with that as we go. But let me pray before we dive in. Father, help us to have soft hearts. May we be ready to hear from you because you are good. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we are starting in chapter 8, verse 3. If you'll follow along with me. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, If it pleased the king, and if I, have found, if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hammedatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who were in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahazuer said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring, for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. Okay, let's pause here. And in the story, we get a little bit of tension. Because if we see, or if we recall, this this well, Esther even tells us, hey, this this proclamation, this decree has been issued saying the Jews are going to be destroyed in the twelfth month and here at the very end of our passage we see again an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. Ahasuerus kind of even resigns himself to this and he's like, here here's the ring, just do what you want, what's been said has been said. You can issue a new decree but that old decree is not going away. So there's this kind of just washing his hands of the whole thing. And he does the same thing that he did before. Remember, he gave Haman his signet ring, giving him authority to write things in the name of the king, and now he just does the same thing to Mordecai and Esther. But it still leaves us with the question, how will God's people be delivered? If this decree can't be revoked, how will they be delivered? Let me give you our first point before we get into our next section so you can be looking for it. It's this. God reverses the plans of his enemies using their own plans against them. God reverses the plans of his enemies using their own plans against them. It's what God is about to do in this section. All right, starting in verse 9. The king's scribes were summoned at that time. In the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai, Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahazuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers, riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews, who were in every city, to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day, throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers, mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Okay. So finally, we get a little bit of resolution. What happens is, the first decree is not rescinded, but a near identical decree is issued by Mordecai. And this identical decree basically says, on that exact same day, in the 12th month, on the 13th day, the same day that Haman originally planned for the destructions of the Jews, the Jews are now allowed to defend themselves. And this edict uses Nearly identical language. It's the third edict in the entire book. Remember, the first edict was this kind of silly, frivolous thing of, hey, wives need to listen to their husbands, and then through the rest of the book, the husbands listen to the wives. And then we have Haman's wicked and evil decree, and finally we have Mordecai's decree, a near I- mirror image of what Haman said. We even get the harsh language of verse 11, of killing and annihilating destroying. That comes comes from Haman's initial decree. And you may look at this and feel like this is pretty harsh. But I want to point out that this is actually a defensive decree. You see it here I've highlighted. They're allowed to gather and defend their lives against those who might attack them. This isn't might in the, well, I think they're looking at me sideways. But no, there's a gathering armed force that is coming at us. And so we are going to defend ourselves but you also have your children and women included. And you look at that and be like, okay, well, what's with that? Well, that's also in Haman's original decree. And so here we have Mordecai mirroring it and saying, look, if you come and attack the Jews, there are consequences. It's it's meant to invoke fear. And the author is bringing up the idea again of reversal. Reversal. Oh, they wanted to destroy the children and women of the Jews? Well, if they do that, they're going to face the same punishment themselves. Okay, so here's our point again, and we're going to unpack it. God reverses the plans of his enemies using their own plans against them. You see, the existence of Haman's decree is what gives rise to this new decree in the first place. It enables God's people to destroy those who are seeking their downfall. If Haman's decree had never been issued, well, then this decree that Mordecai issues would have never been issued. And it's the enemies in gathering to attack the Jews that then allows them to be attacked themselves. So God uses the plans of His enemies against them. And this theme runs throughout all of Scripture. I've quoted this before, but Psalm 2, in chapters 1 and verse 4, the psalmist says this, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Then later it says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. God laughs at the plans of the wicked. And He looks at it and says, You can plan all you want. And your plans are going to fit nice and tidy into what I have planned. We see this Throughout the Scriptures, think about even in Genesis, Joseph gets sold into Egypt by his brothers. Was it wrong for them to do that? Yes. But later on, we see Joseph saying, what you brothers meant for evil, God meant for good. His brothers sold Joseph into slavery, and them doing that resulted in their own lives being rescued several years later during the famine. What they meant for evil, God meant for good. In the exodus, Pharaoh wants to oppress and keep god's people, doesn't want them to well doesn't want to let them go, and God says, "You can be stubborn all you want I'm going to use it for my glory." That results in the Passover and then later on, when Pharaoh still stubbornly pursues Israel and has them back their backs up against the Red Sea, what is he what happens? God rescues his people, he uses the pharaoh's evil and wicked plans to show his grace and mercy to his people rescuing them through the red sea god takes pharaoh's own plan and uses it against him pharaoh rides into the red sea and is destroyed here in the book of Esther, we have plans being made to destroy god's people and what's the result it results in god's people triumphing but the biggest picture of it all is jesus on the cross Satan sought to destroy Jesus. The religious leaders of the day put in place evil and wicked plans. They wanted to kill Christ, and they obviously succeeded. But it was through, through that plan that God saves the world, that God rescues His people. In Acts chapter 4, verse 28, Luke specifically says that all of these people, these wicked people, did whatever God's hand had ordained, whatever He had planned, whatever He had predestined to do. It doesn't negate the plans of the wicked, but God, everything He does is righteous and good, including using the plans of the wicked. Think about Satan in the garden. Satan tempts Adam and Eve because he wants to destroy them. He wants to corrupt the image of God within them. He wants to basically smear God's name. So he tempts them and they fall. They fall into sin. They choose poorly. Death enters into the world. But God allows all of that because it also opens the door for his grace and mercy to be displayed on the cross. Without the presence of sin, there is no need for grace. And God wanted the watching world, the angelic realities, all of the created order, to see that aspect of His nature. And so we have God allowing evil and using it for His own glorious purposes. The Bible tells us that the angels, they don't get to experience God's grace and mercy because those that didn't sin are just perfect and those that did sin are not redeemed. And it says that angels long to look into the things that we, as believers, get to taste and see. That is specifically God's grace. They long to look at it because it's something they don't experience for themselves. But God, in His mercy, shows us what He is like through the existence of evil because He shows us grace and mercy. We get to see the depth of His goodness. In church, that is a good thing. Rox and I got to experience this firsthand with the couple that did our premarital counseling. Uh, Many years prior to our premarital counseling, that their marriage almost fell apart. The husband had a physical affair, the wife had an emotional affair, and they almost divorced. But in God's mercy, God restored their marriage, they forgave one another, got more invested in their church, began to walk with the Lord to a greater degree, experienced the goodness of God in a way that they never had as the gospel became very real, not just in their lives, but in their marriage. And then they started counseling others, started doing premarital counseling and just marriage counseling in general for people who were having problems. Rox and I got to be on the receiving end of what had been a terrible thing that led to grace. We We got to receive that goodness What the enemy meant for evil, God meant for good. So God uses the plans of the wicked against them. Those trials and sufferings that you are experiencing, God is using them. He's turning it around. Maybe not necessarily in this life, but when we get to heaven, we will look back and see exactly what God has been doing, and we will say, God, your plan was perfect. Lord, I praise you. I didn't understand the depth of what you were doing or or why, or why I had to walk through that terrible thing, but Lord, you are good. It'll be so sweet when we are able to see it in its fullness. Now, I want to highlight in our text here what, what happens, what our response should be to a reversal of the enemy's plans. So this edict, this proclamation has been issued by Mordecai, There was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday, and many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Here again, the theme of reversal continues. Remember, a few chapters ago, we had Mordecai dressing himself in sackcloth and ashes, and he wasn't able to go into the king's presence or anywhere near him because he was mourning, but now he's going out from the king's presence. He has robes of blue and white. He's wearing a crown. Also, the city of Susa was thrown into confusion after Haman's proclamation. And now, what are they doing? They're shouting and rejoicing. The Jews as well were mourning and weeping and lamenting. They were also kind of in the same state that Mordecai was in. Now, they're having lightness, joy, honor, gladness. Not only that, remember the Jews were fasting, and here they're feasting. They were mourning, and now they're in a holiday. People were seeking to destroy the Jews, and now people are looking to join them. The reversal has continued. But all of this is the right response to the reversals that God brings. When we see or we even think about the proclamation that God has made, that we are saved from our sins, it should bring great joy. Christian, our lives, our very lives should be characterized by joy. That's not to say that every single moment of your life is going to be, woo, everything is awesome. Not that. But that me, as a believer, there should be a sense of joy that I have within me because of what God has done. The more I dwell on God's goodness, the more my heart should be transformed. We should have joy. Okay. So God reverses these evil plans. And it's been clear through the whole story, it's God doing this. You know, we talked uh, last week about all the coincidences. Yes, God is not mentioned in this book, but there's a reason for that, because we, as God's people, need to respond. Esther, I think, is a book really about the mundane. It's not a book about the, boom, miraculous, here you go, But it's about this is how God normally works in the lives of believers because we need to respond to what God has proclaimed. And it's through us, it's through us that God usually works about His reversal. So let's see this. Okay, here's our point. God's full reversal happens through our full obedience. God's full reversal happens through our full obedience. Full obedience. And this should sound somewhat similar to what we talked about in chapter 4 with Esther taking a step of faith. Now I want to note too, very, I want to be very, very clear. I'm saying this happens through our full obedience, not because of our full obedience. God does not look at our obedience and say, okay, I'm going to save them or I'm going to save these other people. It's not a because, it's a through. We are the vessels that God in His goodness and in His sovereignty has declared is go- are going to bring about his message of hope, we are going to bring his reversal. So let's see this in the text. Chapter 9, verse 1. Now, in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities and throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed five hundred men, and also killed Parshandatha and Dalphon, and Aspatha, and Poratha, and Adalia, and Aridatha, and Parmashta, and Arisai, and Aradai and Visatha, the ten sons sons. Son- son- I got all those names, then I can't read sons. <laughs> oh boy. The ten sons of Haman, the son of Hammedatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled." And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict, and let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. By the way, that's not killing them again, that's taking their dead bodies and hoisting them up on a, a pole to humiliate and degrade them. Verse 15, the Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Here the deliverance comes in full. They get relief from their enemies. Specifically, we see here, the reverse occurred. They were under threat, but instead they gain mastery. They are delivered from, their first, from the first decree through their faithful obedience to the second decree. Now, this whole section to you it may feel a little squeamish. It may look a little violent. I want to remind us that in verse 2 it says that they lay hands on those who sought their harm. It's those who are actively coming against them. But also, they do kill people. And this is one of the realities. We we were talking about this on Tuesday morning at AM Theologians. So I I, I feel it's important to kind of pause here and just comment that in the Old Covenant, God's people were defined ethnically. There was a nation state. There was a physical place where God's glory and presence dwelled. That's the old covenant reality. And it was all a shadow showing us and pointing us to Jesus Christ. It was all saying that these physical things are not enough. Having a nation, being ethnically part of God's people, having a physical place where God's glory dwells, none of that fixes the problem in our hearts. We need a heart transplant. And that's what the new covenant, what Jesus is doing. And we're going to celebrate that uh, later on when we, when we take the Lord's Supper together. We need new hearts. And so the Old Covenant is saying those physical ways aren't enough. They're foreshadowing that something glorious will happen in the future, that Christ will give us new hearts. But also it speaks to a final judgment. When Jesus, as the perfect representative, as the man of God himself, God himself is going to come and slay all of his enemies. There is a judgment coming. There is a 12th month, the 13th day coming. But it's Jesus who is doing that, not us. We need the perfect man to do it, not us. Okay, so that's, there's some old covenant, new covenant realities going on here. Now, what is the author drawing our attention to in this section? There's two things, really. One is the complete destruction of the enemies. This is emphasized by a second day. We have Haman's sons being completely wiped out, We have the number 75,000 given. There are also probably about 75,000 Jews living in the empire at that time. So again, this is emphasizing the aspect of reversal, saying, hey, there were going to be 75,000 Jews probably that were going to be wiped out. But instead of them getting wiped out, it's their enemies. So that's what's getting highlighted there. So complete destruction, that's one thing. But secondly, and I think this is the bigger thing for us today, is complete obedience and faithfulness complete obedience and faithfulness of God's people. Now, why do I say that? Well, three times, you may have noticed the phrase, they laid no hands on the plunder. You'd be like, why? What's the point of that? Well, on the one hand, we see that this whole thing wasn't about greed. It wasn't about them getting a lot of money. But this is more importantly about another biblical episode, which I referenced earlier, way back in the beginning of our series from 1 Samuel chapter 15. In there, King Saul, the first king of the Israelites, and the people were commanded to go destroy the Amalekites, which, by the way, is what Haman was from. The king of the Amalekites, his name was Agag, and Haman is called the Agagite, so he is a descendant of Agag. So, here, I'm going to read for you verse, uh, in chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 15. Verse 3 says this, Now go and strike Amalek, and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Okay? That's the command. Verse 9, But Saul and the people spared Agag, and the best of the sheep, and of the oxen, and of the fattened calves, and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. Skipping ahead to 13, and Samuel the prophet came to Saul, and Saul said to him, "Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord." And Samuel said, "What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear?" The Bible's funny, okay? We saw that last week too. Verse 22, and Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. So here we have an emphasis on that they didn't take the plunder. Now, they were allowed to take the plunder in Esther, that was perfectly allowed. But here, the author is highlighting that there has been a reversal of what happened in the past. In the past, they disobeyed. Now, they're obeying. In the past, when they disobeyed, it led to terrible things. Saul gets rejected as king. But here, the people are faithful and obedient. They don't take the blunder, not because they weren't commanded to, but because they are reenacting what happened before. God has reversed the past. Complete victory is the result. God is so good. Our past failures do not define the result of our obedience now. God in His goodness invites us into His redemptive plan despite what we may have done in the past. You could have screwed up over and over and over again, but it does not change the fact that today, today God can and will still use you as long as you are saying, here I am, Lord, use me. So again, here's our second point. God's full reversal happens through our full obedience. And again, deliverance is happening through active faith. We've been looking at unexpected, expected deliverance. The unexpected part is that God calls us to be a part of it. The biggest threat we face is not a decree from Haman, but his death itself. We are under a decree not from a villain and an evil person, but from God himself, where God said, when you eat the tree... From the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. You will, dying, die. That was a decree, and it is irrevocable. Yet we have eaten from that tree. We have rebelled against God. That is a decree that still hangs over us. It's not been repealed. But God, in His mercy, sends Jesus to die for us. And it was through Christ's obedience that death was reversed. Praise God for that. The death is defeated. And then he invites us to share the good news. He invites us to share the good news. Now, I want to spend our last little bit of time talking about how do we obey? How do we respond? If if, if, If faithful obedience is the call, how do we do that? What does it look like? So we have three ways. Three ways, or three responses, I should say, to God's great reversal. God's great reversal. First one is, preparation we need to prepare because church we are not prepared we often live in apathy and ignorance and it keeps us from being prepared we have to fight ignorance we have to fight it because we don't fight against flesh and blood and this is what we're ignorant of we think our problems are here kind of surface level in my life but we don't fight against flesh and blood we fight against a demonic realm we fight against the world we fight against our flesh Three things that fight against the realities of God and what He is doing. And we don't prepare for those spiritual fights. We need to prepare spiritually, which means I need to not be ignorant to what's actually going on. I also need to fight apathy. We've got to fight ignorance. We've got to fight apathy. We are apathetic to the reality that a 12th month is coming. Imagine if the Jews had heard about the 12th month and this disaster that was going to befall them, and then this new decree that says, hey, you can defend yourselves on the same day, and if they were like, mm, eh, I don't know, I don't think I really need to prepare, I'm just going to show up on the day. You'd be like, uh, maybe you should gather some weapons, and maybe you should take some fighting lessons, you know, I don't know, maybe you should be ready to actually fight. We need to fight apathy. In our lives, we'll say, Someday I'll participate in what the church is doing. Someday I'll start reading my Bible faithfully. Someday I'll serve the people around me. Why not today? Don't wait till the day before your research projects due to start doing the research. Say, Lord, help me today to be ready. So, we've got to prepare. We've got to participate. You can prepare all you want, but then if you don't show up on the day of fighting... Have you really prepared? Now, I want you to to hear me clearly. I am not saying in this sermon today, God helps those who help themselves. Okay? Don't, Don't hear me say that. I am not saying that. I am saying God is inviting us to participate in what he's doing as he moves through us. We get to participate, step into the game. I've talked about that a lot. God has decreed our deliverance. I mentioned this in chapter 4. God has decreed our deliverance, and therefore, I can step into what is happening trusting that God is moving. I don't need to be afraid. We need to see ourselves as people that take up arms for faith, not literal arms, because again, our battle is not against flesh and blood. But we have been called to participate. We have all been drafted. Some of us see, like, okay, there's other people on the front lines, and my job is to stay home. That's not the way this works. In a regular war, yes, some people get drafted and they get sent to fight. But all of us as Christians, as believers, we have been drafted into the army and there are no people that are back on the, in the, in the, on the home front. Yes, your front line may look different from somebody else's front line, but none of us are just hanging out at home working in the factory. We are all on the front lines of a spiritual battle. All of us. Nobody is staying home. All of us have been called to be ministers of reconciliation. Lastly, we celebrate. We are in a current season where a decree has been issued, but it has not fully arrived yet. That day is coming. But what did people do in between when they heard about the decree and when the the actual day arrived? They celebrated because they knew that freedom and life had been given. We need to celebrate. As we prepare, as we participate, we need to have a spirit of celebration, not woe is us, everything is terrible, but instead, God, you are amazing. Is our life, re- is, it, is it marked by celebration and rejoicing? Church, one day, there will be no threat. It will be dealt with. It has been dealt with, but it will be fully dealt with at Christ's return. So here's our big idea and response for today. Prepare, participate, and celebrate God's great reverse is coming. If there's anything we've taken from the book of Esther, it'd be this, please, church, one, that rescue is coming, but two, we, we're called to be part of it. We need to be sharing Christ. Prepare, participate, and celebrate because God is reversing the plans of his enemies and he's bringing us into it. Let me pray. Church, or excuse me, Father, we thank you that as a church, you have called us to participate in what you are doing. Father, help us to turn our eyes to you and to live in light of what you have declared. May we not be burdened, may we not be shackled with lies that say that we don't have victory in Christ, but may we live in light of your good news. Thank you, Lord, for freeing us from sin and death. Thank you that the, the decree of, of death is not the only decree out there, but that there is a decree as well that you are saving and redeeming a, a people for yourself through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for calling us into that. May we live in light of it. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.